Today's episode of All Kings Considered is brought to you by the official House of the Dragon Wine Collection. Welcome back to All Kings Considered. I'm Dan Casey, and once again, we're here to bring you the best roast that Westeros has to offer with our weekly breakdown of House of the Dragon, now with added dragon juice. Now, between a funeral and a wedding, this week was both a family affair and a royal pain in the butt for basically everybody involved. Now, before we get into it, allow me to introduce the rest of our small council for this week's episode. First up, she's the hostess with the mostest at places like Kingston Technology, Amazon, Slick Deals, and so many more. She's a champion of indie games in the reigning queen of the dragon riders on Twitch, please welcome Trisha Hirschberger. Hi, Dan. Trisha, I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me on. I, it, I've missed discussing Westeros with you, so it's good to be back. Yes. Well, good things take time, and we brought you in for a very good episode. It's a very juicy one. Um, but I'm curious, before we move on to our other guests, tell me, what is your, you know, we have a nice uh, wine pairing today, but what is your snack of choice for a show like uh, House of the Dragon? Um, I feel like uh, heart. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> e eating heart is probably the best snack for a Thrones show. Yeah, I'd say that that's pretty accurate. Any any sort of like uh, roast meat, awful liver, heart, you name it, something that feels visceral and medieval in the best way possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Also joining us today, as always, we have Nerdist staff writer, our resident lore master, the only maester that won't give you leeches without a prescription, Michael Walsh. Mikey, how you doing? Only because I, I don't know where to get leeches. That's I fair. I, mean. I, I feel like they just naturally occur. I get you. Maybe maybe there's a swamp nearby. Who cares? Mikey, I have a bigger question for you. What is your snack of choice during a show like House of the Dragon? Oh, I don't. I can't eat during a show like House of the Dragon. I couldn't eat during Game of Thrones. I I can't eat or drink. I'm taking notes, which I would be doing even if I didn't do this for a living. No, there's no. There's nobody can make any noise either. There's silence. I don't want chewing. I don't want drinking. Nothing. Complete silence when you're watching it with me. Yeah, but I, I guess even just irrespective of the like wet mouth sounds ASMR, just it's not an appetizing show all the time. It's like there's some pretty upsetting stuff constantly happening. Um, and speaking of that upsetting stuff, we're going to break the episode down in just a moment. But first up, folks, a spoiler warning as always. If you haven't seen House of the Dragon Episode 7 yet, what are you doing? Why did you click this video? Now, book spoilers will be kept to an absolute minimum. But if you haven't seen the episode yet, well, leave now before it's too late. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Now, folks, I want to know, what were your overall impressions of the episode? Trish, let's start with you. I really liked this episode, mostly because we're finally seeing the chess pieces that have been put into place come to conflict. You know, so like we saw Allison as a child and Otto saying like, this is going to be a conflict. This is going to be a big deal. And in this episode, we get to see that happen. Plus, we get to see the kids of what will become the Targaryen Civil War really start to come into their own. And we're getting to know their personality. So I liked this episode a lot. I think that's I think you really hit the nail on the head there. It's like unlike all the others where we've had these big time skips, you really get to see immediate aftermath for a pretty catastrophic event. And you get to see a lot more personality, whereas last episode it was more table setting after that 10 year time jump. Now you get to see like Aegon being just like an absolute little dweeb uh, in the best <laughs> way possible. Um, Mikey, what about you? What did you think of this week's episode? I was struck by how sad it made me the first 
30 minutes. That funeral, it was really heartbreaking. And it was for a reason that I don't think comes across in the book very well, which is that, you know, it's this is a story of, of Rhaenyra versus Alicent and all the people that they pull into it. But this episode really showed how they are victimizing the children. And they are putting these kids in this horrible, horrible spot. And it, it really hit me in a way I just wasn't prepared for, you know, from from Sarah saying, if I'm the Lord of Driftmark, that means everybody's dead, to poor Jace not even being able to mourn his father because of, you know, the shame and whatnot. It was really horrible. It was really horrible. And I, I understand how it moved the plot forward and, it, you know, the changes it made that were both interesting and, you know, debatable if they were good or not. Um but on that level, it really hit me, and I think that that was really effective, and it shows that we do care about at least some of these characters. Yeah, I mean, it. this is definitely becoming a generational conflict, much more so than just between kind of like, you know, the you have the, the parents like Otto Hightower and King Viserys, and you have Alicent, and you have Rhaenyra, but now they're bringing a new generation of kids into this, and they're already at odds with each other. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. You know, you said this episode is sad, but my question is, why is this episode so dark? Like, literally dark <laughs> to the point of it, it. You're like echolocating through these really emotional scenes. I had cr I tried watching both on my TV and on my computer. It's dark everywhere. Uh, is this just a Miguel Sapochnik's uh, like preferred stylistic mode? Like, did this detract from the episode for you? Were you just like, oh, it's Game of Thrones. They haven't really figured out nighttime scenes. Trisha, what do you think? I mean, Game of Thrones definitely hasn't figured out nighttime scenes. I remember reading in uh, Game of Thrones, the primary television series, that it may have something to do with the compression format, that when it's streamed through HBO's oh. app, the lighting is a little different than how they intended it to be viewed. Um, and I, I don't know how much fact there is in that, but it would certainly make sense because there's a lot of scenes both in the Game of Thrones primary series and now in House of the Dragon, not just this episode, where you're squinting to try to see what the heck is happening. I specifically remember it with um, all, all of the uh, the brothel excursions, if yeah. you will, um, where you're like, I can't even see what's happening. But I mean, with that, I was kind of glad I couldn't see what was happening. That was fine. Um, but, you know, it, for storytelling purposes, it would be nice to actually be able to see. Um, so whether it is a an artistic choice for realism or uh, or an actual technical difficulty in the compression of the video format, it's not my favorite is what yeah. I'll say. I, I, think, I, I think that that does bring up a good point in that it is likely, I think the compression is likely playing a role in that for sure, especially when they're broadcasting to so many people. I remember the first episode of the series came out and then it went, the service went down for like a good chunk of users. So there's probably some sort of uh, technical wizardry on the back end that is making things a little bit harder to visualize than maybe what they're watching in the edit bay. But even okay. so, I was getting sort of uh, visceral flashbacks to the uh, Battle of Winterfell, um, where I'm like, well, I know this isn't supposed to be pitch black, but maybe we can just do like, like a like a fluorescent black, like a black that I can perceive with, on the visible spectrum of light. Uh, Mikey, what did you think? I saw two common refrains last night on social media after the episode. One was that this was the best episode yet. And two, that it was too dark and nobody could see anything. How stupid is that? You know, how stupid is that? Now, you, you've taken you've taken your show that you want us to care about and be invested in, and half the people are talking about how they couldn't see it. Now, if this had never happened before, okay, mistakes are made, right? Compression issues, whatever. This happened before. This, <laughs> this, 
This happened during one of the most important episodes in Game of Thrones history, which, by the way, is one of the few times I have ever talked during an episode. I literally screamed 25 minutes into it, can anybody see anything? I was so mad. <laughs> I was so mad. I was so mad. And uh, not to, to draw the curtain back, but, you know, we've been lucky, Dan, in that um, there have been screeners for the show, unlike yeah. late, late stage Game of Thrones. And the screener did not look as dark. It had this weird blue-gray kind of um, right before dawn feel to it, yeah. and it still it still looked muddy. But you could see a what they were going for, and b what was happening. When mm. I was watching it on TV last night, I, I couldn't see anything. It was it was terrible, and I just don't understand why they keep allowing this to happen. And, and I heard they say, "Well, this was an intentional creative choice." Okay, it was a bad one. It was a really <laughs> bad one. Bad job, guys. Yeah. Bad job by you. But but like you can shoot with natural light. Look at a movie like The Revenant. You can shoot with natural light and still have be visible. Uh, I, I think that this is just they need to find that uh, middle point between the artistry and the technology, because right now it's just, yeah, it you shouldn't have what's many people are saying is your best episode of the season be something that you can only listen to as like an audio drama, like if it's intended to be audio visual in nature. Um, but uh, with that said, let's move on to the episode. Let's talk about how this episode put the fun back in funeral with uh, both a very sad affair at the beginning and then a very uncomfortable, uh, awkward sort of wake with all of this subtle politicking going on. What were your thoughts about how this scene played out and uh, just sort of everyone's sort of weird interactions here? You got to see all these different characters sort of bounce off each other that we hadn't seen previously. Uh, Trisha, what about you? What do you think about this? Um, I mean, I think it goes back to what Mikey was saying in the beginning, where this this wake was just so sad. Um, and the specific mention of the thinning of the blood <laughs> and then Damon laughing, like put such a weird halt to all of the feels that I think we were all feeling. Um, and it, it just really, for me, isolated Damon Targaryen as being like such a weasel. He's such a weasel. Um, yeah. I think you like him as the weasel. I think most people do. Um, but, you know, taking like a chuckle at your wife's funeral off of a jive, a jive at somebody else. Like it was just there was there was a lot going on. Um, I, I and I mostly I agree with Mikey. I mostly felt for the kids, um, especially for me. The big one was like, obviously, Lena's kids are there to mourn their mom. Um, but the, the bigger one for me was Jace not being able to mourn his dad. Um, yeah, that was, that was just such wow. a gut punch. Because even though we don't really know these kids yet, I mean, they're kids. You naturally, yeah. you naturally feel for the children. At least I do when I watch something. So even if they turn out to be total jerk face kids, as we're going to see later in the episode, you're still like, man, that's the worst. Yeah, it's but it's also like, look, they're they're kids in this like really messed up situation. Like their parents are some of the most powerful people in the world and they're grappling with these emotions they haven't felt before. And yeah, you're right. Damon is uh, two for two now on just being the most inappropriate man alive when it comes to mourning his recently deceased spouse. Like yeah. the way he talked back to uh, the guy from House Royce and is just like laughing during the uh, the funeral rites, which I did. I, I really liked how like sort of austere 
And uh, it felt like there was so much pomp and circumstance to the funeral rite with the stone coffin that goes to the bottom. It was like uh, a less terrifying version of what you would see on the Iron Islands. Um, and I mean that in a good way. Um, so I like to see them sort of bring in these different aspects, like sort of these old Valyrian traditions, uh, as we see through House Valarian. Uh, I also want to talk about, I thought they did so much with just subtle looks in this episode and, and not so subtle looks, especially during this scene where you have Rhaenyra looking at Damon, who looks back at Rhaenyra. And then you pan over and see that Alicent is making a wild face at Rhaenyra. And then Kristen Cole's just like, well, what do we have here? Uh, so, Mikey, I want to get your take on how this funeral scene played out as well, especially the aftermath in the in the wake. You know, I think we talked about it before with the the wedding rehearsal dinner, the, the Game of Thrones universe never is better than when they just get a bunch of characters together and have them look at each other. You know, whether it's a wedding or a funeral, if they can have one character look across to another and it's like all the subtext is there and it's everything you need and it's perfect and no dialogue has to be written. Um, as far as the rest of the episode, I, what I'm really, really enjoying is that this show is staying true to what George R. R. Martin is really writing about with A Song of Ice and Fire, which is, you know, what does it really mean to have power? To wield it you know what is it that you can and can't do and we see that with uh, Lenor who you know he realizes I thought I could do my duty and be happy I can't this is what Maester Aemon's going to say to Jon Snow in 150 years we also see you know Lord Corlys Valerian talking about you know what is life if not for the pursuit of legacy it's like he's Tywin Lannister there and, you know, if you're looking for uh, foreshadowing without giving anything away, you know, you look and you see someone like Lord Lionel Strong, really good man, right? Really honorable. What did that get him? It got him killed, same as Ned Stark. Mm -hmm. We see somebody who's so focused on legacy and what did Tywin Lannister do? He didn't lead his kids to any place happy. He didn't even lead them to any place successful. So I really, I really think that the show – fundamentally understands what this story and, and what George R. R. Martin's larger story is about. What does it mean to lead? What does it take to be a good leader? So, Yeah, and it's also nice to see that most of the people on the show aren't very good leaders. They're all either feckless or just ruled by their impulses or just it's so easily baited into doing something that is just grotesquely irresponsible. Like, I feel like Damon, if you just, if you just talk to him, he would just, you could get him to do anything you want. He's the, probably the easiest to manipulate person, but he thinks that he's also this master manipulator. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, he did kind of get what he wanted the whole time by the episode's end. Let's uh, let's move on to talk a little bit about uh, the beach sequences uh, where we get both this, uh, romance blossoming between, uh, and I guess not blossoming, is resuming between Rhaenyra and Damon, and then you have uh, Aemond being a, a little scamp and trying to claim a dragon of his own. Uh, what, what, what are the, how did the sort of moonlight uh, sonata parts play out for you, uh, Trisha? I mean, it's always uncomfortable to see some Targaryen incest coming to fruition. Yes. Um. So as much as I. I don't know why, but I always kind of feel myself rooting for Renera a little bit in the Renera Allison struggle. Um, and I don't know if that's intentional show design or what, but as much as I was like wanting to be in her court of like, oh, she's finally getting what she wanted. I'm also like, he's a weasel and that's your uncle, ma'am. Um, plus like you're both just mourning your dead spouses. Give it a moment. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. And then in terms of Eamon claiming the dragon, claiming Gygar, I, that was like 
I was rooting for him because I was like, the kid that was bullied, I'm in the camp of the kid that was bullied, you go get that dragon, boo. Like, I'm all excited for him. And then he turns into a total crap face immediately afterwards where he gets himself to the point of near stoning his cousin. Like, I was like, what is even happening right now, Thrones? Yeah, so they... It was a lot of a lot of whiplash, I guess. Yes, like I, I think whiplash. emotional whiplash is exactly what I was going to use for that. Not not just because for a moment you think, oh, is Aemon going to fly off the back of this dragon and immediately oh, die, illustrating why he wasn't ready for this. Uh, so it's it's one of those moments where I thought that was I thought that was very well done, especially because Vagar, like the biggest of the dragons, the biggest dragon alive, and just seeing the difference in scale when you see him walk up to this giant murder puppy and then manage to claim it for uh, claim Vagar for himself. Uh, and then the aftermath where you're like, Oh no, you are, you're a little jerk. Um, so Mikey, what, what were your thoughts on before we get to the fight? What were your thoughts on the, these two sequences sort of intertwined? When I said earlier, I felt bad for the kids. I should have clarified. I will never feel bad for Aemon <laughs> or Aegon Targaryen. I will never, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Um, as for Rhaenyra and Damon, it, this feels like a real unforced error. There is no need to do this so quickly, you know. And they talk about their plan. Oh well, you know, the realm will whisper that that I had something to do with it. And Damon says, "Well, that's good. You know, we want your enemies to think you're capable of anything." Okay, do you have to marry right now to make it so obvious? And you know, Rhaenyra, Rhaenyra wants somebody who will love her and be loyal to her now that she's lost her Harwin strong, right? She's really getting more and more isolated and she needs somebody that she trusts, except everybody hates Damon. You know, he doesn't really have many friends. He, 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 he does like have people who are loyal to him, but they're all not powerful. You know, like the city watch, what's the city watch going to do? Right. As for Eamon, it's really too bad. He didn't fall off that dragon. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really, it just, if the show is the show, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the, the change from the books to Sir Laner's death. Um, if the, if the show ever wanted to make a change, that was the way to go. Have Eamon fall off the back. Um, but, you know, I, at least he got a little come up. It's, yeah, I'm sure we're going to talk about that now. It's okay. Yeah. I'm no, with it, Mikey. I, I said out loud, and this is where this baby dies as the, as the dragon was taking flight. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, Game of Thrones as a franchise has a proud tradition of uh, sending uh, blonde children hurtling to an untimely doom. Uh, and Aemond uh, was no exception, it seemed, for a moment there when he's hanging on by a thread, doing his best Tom Cruise impression, hanging on to literally any aircraft. Um, but yeah, then. We see like the aftermath of that is, I think, one of the most effective and brutal scenes in the entire show so far, because it is this like the conflict of these parents playing out amongst these kids. And it played out so much more powerfully for me here than it did in the book. In the book, it's like in the book, it's pretty shocking. And you're kind of like, especially because you're just like theater of the mind, you're kind of like imagining what's happening as you hear this or you read this. But seeing it and just seeing how scrappy it is, how 
He's getting jumped by four children and then he gets the upper hand. It's so back and forth and just grotesque, especially how every moment plays out. You can see these like little light bulbs turning. Of course, the kid has a knife like he's a little princeling. He's going to have a little knife, but he's not going to know what to do with it. Um, but what were, your, what were your thoughts on how this particular uh, scene played out? The you know, this should be the new uh, Christmas story where you're going to poke your eye out if you're not careful. Um, uh, <laughs> Trisha, let's start with you on this one. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, as a parent, this scene gave me a heart attack. Like, every single moment of it gave me a heart attack. Because exactly what you were saying, Dan, where, like, you see the little light bulbs going off. They're trying to do whatever they can. And I might be misremembering the order of it, but it seems like Amon came in and uh, was being a jerk and gave an insult to uh, to one of the girls. And then... They got into a physical altercation and then Renera's boys came in to defend the ladies and like it just escalated from there. But I mean, when it gets to the point where one of the kids has a rock, like a massive rock held up to crush the skull of another child, then it's understandable why a knife would come into play at that point, because now you're trying to prevent child murder. Yes. Uh, but then once the knife comes into play, there's even more chance of child murder. So like I said, as a parent, like everything in this played out, I thought very realistically um, as to what a kind of, like you said, scrappy battle would look like between kids. And it just like, I, I feel like as a parent, a lot of, a, a lot of people have a natural tendency to want to put your kids in a bubble um, and just real life bubble boy it for the rest of their lives. But this team put <laughs> me in that mode so hard. I was like, that's it. They're all in hamster wheels. They're all in hamster yep. wheels till they're adults. <laughs> and we're fine. Um, but yeah, it was it, it, like the anxiety was through the roof for me watching that scene. Yeah. And, and like the fact that there's no guards around either it just shows you like of course these kids have free reign to the castle why why would the guards suspect that anything like this is happening and it, it's just it, it yeah it, it, it there's this like really uncomfortable element of your where you're watching you're like oh this i can see how this would escalate so quickly because it you don't it doesn't seem like Amon was going to be like but you're not worth it it seemed like he was going to genuinely murder his cousin oh yeah uh, yeah uh, Mikey, what were your thoughts on this? Also, as a parent, um, look, I made my views on Eamon Targaryen clear. <laughs> Big but fan. If, if you if you think I'm going to sit here and say I was glad to see a kid lose his eye, I'm not going to do that because people can then play that audio back. Uh, you could just DM me on Twitter, <laughs> and I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say it now. I'll write it in uh, Wingdings. You know, I uh, that is a change from the book, how that plays out in, in the book. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the girls. It has to do with the three uh, cousins, uh, uh, nephews technically. And it involves Joffrey, the youngest of Rhaenyra's three boys. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think they got – I think it's pretty much in terms of the, the idea it's similar, even if the specifics are a little bit different. I think they the real fallout of that comes later when Otto Hightower goes to Alicent and tells her, the boy's right, like – trading an eye for this dragon. And it's it's so despicable. It's so despicable because what he is saying right there is like, great news. He got us a weapon for war. This We're sending your kids to war. We know there's going to be fire and blood. And he got the biggest dragon. And it, there's this, this, this idea on the show that this war of secession is inevitable. But it's not inevitable. There is one side who is angling for war. It's the Hightower side. And they are going to get a lot of people killed, and they don't care. At no point does Allison say something like, wait, what, what, what are you doing here? Why are we, we going to put our kids in a war 
against other dragon riders. And, and I think that that scene stuck with me even more than the actual fight when he lost the eye. Yeah. I mean that, uh, like having read the book, I knew when that, when they started arguing like that, I knew it was coming, but it still hits like a ton of bricks when you see the actual moment. And then the aftermath, which I would argue is even worse seeing the maester sewing them up like game of Thrones, house, of the dragon, uh, they, Anytime there's like a medieval surgery sequence, I'm always like, I I hate everyone involved for putting this image in my eyeballs forevermore. Um, but the, I, I do want to talk about the aftermath because I thought that was one of the best scenes of the episode, um, especially when you have just rain, uh, when you have Alicent demanding justice, when you have her demanding an eye for an eye and then going like full like feral mom mode with the Valyrian steel dagger going after Rhaenyra. So I want to talk about that. Mikey, what, what were your thoughts on um, how that scene played out? Because you, you mentioned a little bit, but like, let, what, what were your thoughts on the sort of whole sequence unfolding? That that's probably about as good as the show gets, right? Like this is, it's all there and it's all the things they want to say and they can't say. And, you know, Patty Considine, I, I, maybe we don't talk about him enough and how good he has been because he is just in control in that scene in a way he's usually not. Um, I also, I, I just, we see these relationships come out and we, the, the, the final showdown between Allison and Rhaenyra, when Allison lays it on the line, like, where is your sense of duty? Where is your sense of responsibility? Why do you get to do whatever you want and I get to do nothing, right? Why do I have responsibilities that you don't? And Rhaenyra calling her out, like, must have been real tough. Must have been real tough hiding who you really are. I, I, I thought that was so good. And, you know, even even Rhaenyra coming in late with Damon, even Sir Laner not being there. It, it's so good. It, even, even the people who aren't there contribute to the scene. And you know, you know Alicent is a bad person when even Sir Kristen Cole is like, uh, I'm not going to take the kids. Yeah, I, I, I want to. He wanted to. He would <laughs> yeah. take he wanted. I mean, let's not let's not let him off the hook. He just didn't want to have a knife, a knife or a sword through his own throat. Um, yes, you know, Allison's very bad when Sir Kristen is like, no, too far even for me, the worst person in the world. Look, I I hate their mom, capital H hate, but uh, I this might be a bridge too far for me. The worst character on the show. Um, no, I think that I think that's a, a good point. Where it's like uh, for me in that moment, it also humanized Alicent a little bit more than the show has been humanizing her because I think Trisha you hit on this earlier where the show almost makes you root for Rhaenyra by design because you know one of the Targaryens one of the titular house of the dragon and like oh my god she's being pushed out of her birthright look she is not necessarily uh, an innocent person in all of this she straight up lied to Alicent and swore on her dead mom and like did uh, this person who's trying to who's been pushed into the situation. And it was nice to see sort of Allison have her own sort of like network moment where like, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore and just sort of freak out a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to be to her detriment in terms of like her standing in that room. But I thought it was very well done. But Trisha, what were your thoughts on this sequence? I mean, I could not get behind Allison in this moment. I was like, ma'am, I understand you're upset about your son. But to say... Uh, can we have a public child eye gouging yeah. now in response? Like, what? That, like, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I thought that your dad, like, told you your kids are going to die if you don't promote war. So here you are promoting war. I'm real mad. But to skip from that to public child eye gouging, it was like a 
full evil swap that I guess I now I didn't read this book. Um, but it, it, for me, this this felt like, OK, ma'am, you've gone full evil and you're going full evil very publicly. And then not even demanding the public child eye gouging, but then going so far as to take a blade straight to the princess in front of everybody. Like we're not even poisoning behind the scenes. We're not hiring a hitman. No, we're just going for it right here in front of everyone. And I was like, on one hand, I applaud the boldness. But on the other hand, like you just have no Fs left to give, I assume, in this point. Uh, and and it was it was wild to watch. And I kept like screaming at the TV. Why is no one stopping her? Why is no one stopping her? Like, like you said, Mikey, even Sir Kristen was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that, though. Uh, and then when she, but when she runs at Rhaenyra, I was like, okay, okay, no one's coming in here to break this apart. We're just going to let this play out how it plays out. Come on. What oh, do the it's... Kingsguard do? What do they do? If it, Like, they need to protect Alicent from herself and protect mm-hmm. Rhaenyra. What are they doing? Why is this okay? <laughs> no, no, it's simple. Uh, Damon uh, simply just stepped in front of Sir Kristen Cole and was like, no, let's, let's let this play out. This is going to be good. Uh, Give him room. Damon just, Give him room. Just, no, trust me, this is fine. I've seen this happen a hundred times. Me, Damon, the most trustworthy person here. Um, yeah, it was uh, definitely uncomfortable all around. A huge escalation. You know, we've seen Alicent get better at playing the Game of Thrones, but clearly she still has a long way to go if, you know, she needs to sort of regulate that into, you already have the world's most devious person in your corner. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on, uh, her scene with Laris, because... Man, scariest person in Westeros right now, bar none, bar none. Um, But I wanted to also, yeah, I also want to talk about um, something that I find really compelling. And this is, again, Patty Considine. uh, Despite them making him look like the Crypt Keeper's brother, uh, he was so good in this moment trying to, you know, this man who can barely hold himself together, trying to hold the family and by proxy the realm together in this moment. Um, But what do you think about his continued refusal to abide even the whisper of bastardy regarding Rhaenyra's sons uh, when everyone else seems to be talking about it. Um, Trisha, how did that play out for you when it's just seeing like how King Viserys is right now and his sort of refusal to accept what's in front of him? I love watching him right now. I think, I think he's doing a masterful job, not only in the portrayal of the storyline, but you know, there are times when I feel like we see King Viserys, be a weaker regent, to be perfectly honest. But in this moment, we see him be like, no, stop. I'm in charge. You guys knock this off. Uh, And I I do feel like he actually has a moment where he steps up to the plate. And in regards to him constantly refusing to acknowledge uh, Rhaenyra's son's parentage, I mean, we've all seen parents that have a soft spot for their child, that no matter Mm -hmm. what they do, they will justify it in any way they can. He did it with the uh, Renera Damon brothel situation back in the day, uh, even though he knew he never admitted that he knew. I mean, the only admit admittance that we got, if you will, was the potion being sent by the maester at the end of the episode. So, like, I think he knows, but I think he cannot admit it publicly, A, because mm-hmm. of the harm it would do to her, B, because he's put so much into... Renera being his heir, and he is stuck by that for so long, he has too much invested to admit it publicly at this point. It would do too much harm to him. So I think he's stuck between a rock and a hard place of like, he knows how bad it looks. He knows that's probably the truth. 
but there's no way in hell he can ever admit it. Yeah. I, even if I feel like even if he does logically know it, he has to sort of deny it uh, mm-hmm. just mentally just to get through the day. Like, cause yep. that's, he has so many other worries and people vying for his attention stuff in the stepstones, sp- like spooling back up. He's got enough. He's got enough stuff on his plate right now without having to question the parentage of his only daughter and the heir to the throne. Uh, Mikey, what about you? How did the, how did this play out for you? I don't see any way he can acknowledge it uh, without possibly condemning her to death. Mm-hmm. It would also put his entire family at risk because it would be such a dishonor on House Valerian, who are so powerful. You know, not just because they're their allies, they're just powerful on their own. You know, Viserys is this example of not being able to rule, not because you don't want to be a good ruler, but because you're not willing to do the stuff that makes you unlikable. You know, like he said, I think I'm cursed. He said, he told Allison a few episodes ago, I think I'm cursed to upset one person and making someone else happy. Yeah, well, that's how it works. That's that's what comes with power. And we see his inability to to deal with these these problems you know if, if we're sitting here we're monday morning quarterbacking um and i assume they don't have football in westeros but we understand the reference um <laughs> you know if we're if we're sitting here we're looking at it objectively we're thinking okay what's what's the best thing to do to save everybody you have to disinherit rainera right let her do it herself let her step away solve these problems you know make sure there are all these guarantees but he won't do it he won't do it because he doesn't want to hurt his daughter who he loves he also, I don't think, wants the the problems that would come with that because the whispers wouldn't go away. They'd only intensify. Uh, but this is what happens when you choose – I hate to sound like a cliche, but you choose love over duty. This is what happens in Westeros and this is what happens when you play the Game of Thrones. When you choose love over duty, you create these problems and, and this is now a problem for everybody. Well, we're going to talk more about those problems in just a moment. But first, I want to give a thank you again to today's sponsor, uh, the official House of the Dragon wine collection. Folks, now that we're back in Westeros with HBO's House of the Dragon, you need a beverage that's worthy of the Iron Throne. But thankfully, Warner Brothers Consumer Products and Vintage Wine Estates have you covered with the official House of the Dragon wine collection. The real question is, which one will be the heir to your taste buds? The delectable fruit-forward Pinot Noir, a delightfully jammy Cabernet Sauvignon, or a velvety smooth red wine blend if you're 21 or older you have to try the entire house of the dragon wine collection for yourself to find out more head to house of the check it out in the description below and please drink responsibly and also please invite me to your next viewing party especially if you're serving this sweet sweet delicious wine thank you so much oh, this is great this is actually really good <laughs> I'm All bummed right. I don't have, I, Dan, I have these dragon goblets. Uh, oh, no. I don't have to showcase this with right now. But I know exactly which goblets I'm drinking this wine out of. Next, yes, next yes. Episode. They are best served from a dragon goblet. But in lieu of that, any any sort of vessel works well. It does the job. Um, okay. I want to get back into it. Talk about sort of the morning after. Um, uh, you know, we already discussed a little bit Otto happily greeting Alicent. Um, so let's talk about like Allison's aftermath of this, because, you know, she is, I think, as any one of us would be profoundly embarrassed and just feeling like she's kind of just sort she's like torpedoed her own chances at getting her kids on the throne in a meaningful fashion. Um, but what do you think about how Otto reacts to this and what's the reality of the situation for her? Um, Trisha, let's start with you. Um, this scene shocked me. Because prior to this, I thought, you know, Otto, not a terrible dude, like very ambitious, trying to get his kids on the throne, but like 
you know, in the grand scheme of Game of Thrones, I've seen worse. Kind of, that's how I felt about Otto until this moment. And then when he comes in and he's like, hey, that that child and princess assault you almost did, real good. Liked it. Loved it. I was, I was at that point, I was like, oh no, you are the absolute worst, sir. And I am now seeing it very clearly. Um, because yeah, I mean, it seems like to me, who I, you know, ha has spent many, many decades now with the Game of Thrones material between the books and the shows. It seems like the last thing you want to do is show your whole hand. And Allison 100% showed her whole hand in front of everybody. So I was like, yeah, that's real bad, though. Um, and, you know, I thought Renera got the zinger there when she was like, now everybody sees you for who you really are. Like, I was like, done. Checkmate. Bad job, Allison. Um, so then when Otto comes in and he's like, the next <laughs> the morning. slow clap. The evil what? slow clap. What? Yeah, it, it completely knocked my socks off. But I was like, well, now I know where we're going. But it's it's one of those things, though, where, yeah, exactly. You know, she played her whole hand and it went poorly for her in the moment. But there's a moment there in that scene where you think it's going to go in her favor because everyone is like dead silent. And everyone's been talking about this for the past couple episodes. They're like, huh, these kids don't look anything like any other Valerian kid that we've established on the show. They don't. These kids look nothing like their father at all. Sure is weird, huh? And it, seeing like Allison for a moment, you think it's going to go in her way. Then it swings back when Viserys is like, if you say anything like this, I'm going to cut out your tongue. And believe me when I say I will cut out your tongue. I love cutting out tongues. <laughs> and it just this moment where just Otto Hightower, ultimate consummate schemer. And it just makes me more worried than ever, especially uh, with all the clues for the Grand Maester conspiracy we've had previously. Although the fact that Viserys is still kicking makes me wonder how effective these maesters really are to begin with. Uh, but Mikey, since we're talking about that, what did you think about Otto's appearance here? You know, because I talked about it earlier, I think this is a good point to to talk about the smartest person in Westeros, Princess Rhaenys. Because this scene between Otto and Alicent really plays against the scene between her and her husband Corlys. Mm -hmm. With him talking about legacy and, and her being like, I don't care about any of that. I just want to live my life. There's more to life than this this foolishness and this, this Game of Thrones. I just want to live my life. And unfortunately, she's getting swept up in it. You know, as much as she wants to stay out of it, as much as she wants, wanted to keep her kids safe, you know, everything she feared has happened. Um, but we're, we're seeing, and you know, Trisha, you're talking about, you know, they're setting up Rhaenyra. They are definitely setting up Rhaenyra to be, to be like the good side of this fight. Um, in Fire and Blood, I've talked about this in the past, one of the reasons I wasn't totally sold on this as an adaptation was because it's a story of really bad people. Every adult in Fire and Blood is a really bad person. And the show has softened Rhaenyra to make her someone worth rooting for, even with this, this big plan at the end with Sir Laenor. You know, this is, this is showing her in the best light possible. So there are good people in this story, uh, none better than, than the queen who never was, who, once again, we see if the, if the Lords of Westeros had just gotten over their whole thing about women, all of this could have been avoided. Yeah, it's it, that scene in particular where she's just like, I don't care anymore. And Cor he, he also, Corliss is just like, but I still care. And that's it's this fundamental disconnect where 
I get it. He was the most famous sailor in all of Westerosi history. He's used to accolades, built his family into the, one of the richest in the world. And he wants to secure that. He doesn't want this just be like, so wait, so I just get to sit on this weird little driftwood throne for the rest of my days? Like, feels like I should get a promotion at some point or like, my wife was supposed to sit on the throne. Can we still do that if we're talking about who gets to play musical chairs here? So yeah, I like seeing that disconnect, but you really feel for the uh, Valerian family this episode with everything that happens. Um, and speaking of that, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the master plan for Lenar, uh, Lenor and Carl. Um, this one, I, I got to admit, I, I felt a little sheepish when I was like, oh, they pulled a fast one on me. I really thought that Damon was just going to have Carl straight up murder Lenor because Lenor is like, oh, you're going to go die in the uh, Stepstones anyway. So it's, it's husband time. I, I've been I've been pretty unattentive. So let me let me go back to being a husband that the realm needs. Um, or or your thoughts on how this played out, this whole sequence, because this I definitely I came it. They, they got me on this one. I was not I was not ready for this. Uh, Trisha, what about you? What do you think? Oh man, I saw this coming a mile away. Uh, so when anytime in Game of Thrones that you don't actually see a death, I am apt to believe not actually dead. So yeah. when we see the top half of a body in the fire, I was like, not actually him. Uh, you know, and so then when we get to see them rowing off into the sunset together to live happily ever after, I was legit happy for Lenor. I mean, as Mikey said, there are not many good people in this story, and Lenor certainly has had his faults throughout all of this but ultimately as Renera said like you're one of the few good ones out there and like he tried he didn't do a great job but he tried and and i i'm happy that Lenor and carl get to sail off into the sunset and live what is presumably their own version of as happily ever after as you can get yes. in westeros but you know what i mean like i i'm i'm happy that they didn't just straight up have him murdered because damon would have totally done that it would have it would have just been too relentlessly cruel, even for this show. Like I, I understand this is a show where people get murdered on a whim all the time for much uh, more uh, innocuous reasons. But I just feel like the way that, especially the way that Rhaenyra was talking with Lenor, it would have felt like such a, I guess, like a one eighty in her characterization to be like, you know, yeah, I I really did want to make this work with you. Um, so I'm going to have my uh, uncle husband uh, kill you um, in a couple minutes from now. Well, uh, I feel like Renera and Lenor have actually become friends. Yes. Through this, through these years, you know, they, they had an understanding from the very beginning. And I feel like there is some type of love there between them. So you're absolutely, absolutely. correct. If they had just done away with him, it would have been such a 180 and such a betrayal and so cool. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. I mean, they, they very, yeah, they very clearly love each other, just not in the way that the realm perhaps needed or they needed to secure their positions in this fashion. Right. Uh, but Mikey, what, what did you think about this? Uh, the old switcheroo they pulled on us. The old, the old drift mark switcheroo. Uh-huh. Classic uh, drift mark. Yeah. Classic drift mark. I, I am not sure how much I like this change. Um, mm. I think it would have been really bad to have Rhaenyra, you know, order his killing. But in Fire and Blood, there's really no question of what happens. Lanor definitely dies. Carl oh. Corey definitely kills him. And the belief is that Damon pays him off to eliminate him as a, as, as a, a blockage to marrying 
Rhaenyra. But she's never really implicated. You know, she's only implicated in the way that, like, she always is anytime her uncle does something. So I don't think that they needed to change this to to soften her again because she wasn't – she's not really involved with it. But it is one more time where we're seeing maybe Damon's not quite the devious monster we think. You know, they gave him a death that he doesn't have in the books. He kills Lady uh, Rhea, which in the books he does not do. Oh. Uh, but there, you know, but he's thought that maybe he kills Sir Harwin Strong in the book. Maybe he was the one who paid Carl Corey to kill Laner. So this is, you know, the Fire and Blood, for those who have not read it, it's an unreliable history. The Dance of the Dragon specifically is unreliable. It is a, a maester years later, century over a century later, writing, and he's using three primary sources that are all super biased. Sometimes they can't agree. We get multiple versions of a story. So this show is both answering questions, but also adapting. So, you know, if we got, if we asked George R. R. Martin, he might say something like, Laner did not flee to Essos. He definitely died. So it, I guess it really just, you know, if, if it works, if it works for the show and it works for you, great. If this is one, though, where I definitely am a little bit on the fence and I can see the argument both for and against this change. Yeah. I mean, look, you could, they could also easily write in later how, Maybe Lenor dies when he gets to Essos, like they just an errant raven from Carl being like, hey, so uh, how do I keep getting that royal allowance? Huh? They're like, sorry, uh, return to sender. This this per- this mess, this inbox is full. Sorry, buddy. Uh, but yeah, it's I also half expect the end of this series to just have someone pan out closing a book and it's mushroom being like, at least that's how I remember it. Uh, and then we can finally get the mushroom appearance that everyone's been wanting uh, on this show so far. <laughs> But I also want to talk about um, something that I thought was like one of the most impactful scenes in this episode, and that is the weird Valyrian blood wedding between uh, Damon and Rhaenyra. Grossest wedding on the show. What is going on here? There's so like just like so much blood being spilled. And then do they drink each other's blood as well? What what were your thoughts on this? Because it was like also when they pan over to show the kids there too. I'm like, this is really uncomfortable. Hey, um, we know that both of your other parents just died, but I'm going to marry my uncle and I'm going to marry my niece. We're going to drink each other's blood while we make you stand on a foggy coastline next to this weird priest chanting in a language that you may not understand because we don't have Duolingo. Um, Yeah, it was just, uh, it was just quite a bit to take in. Mikey, what were your thoughts on this? I would jump in front of dragon flame to protect my wife. I would, I would jump in front of dragon flame. I would take a Valerian sword right through the heart. If she told me I had to slice open my lip to marry her, I'd have been like, "Well, you have a good life. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not doing that. I. It, you know. It, it's look. It's. It was really interesting to see a Valerian, uh, a high. You know, a Valerian wedding be, between high lords and ladies. Uh, it's just interesting to see. You know how different that world, which is is long gone at this point, is. But it was uh, unpleasant to watch. It really. I. I don't like. I don't like cuts. I don't like. I didn't like watching the tongues get cut off. Um, if I didn't hate Eamon, I would have hated that losing his eye. Um, I, I, I don't need to see this. I don't need to see this. I can th- kill an innocent guard, throw him in the fire. Fine, yeah. whatever, whatever. Poor guy. That's fine. I'm fine with that. I don't want to see you cutting your lip. I do feel. I, I do feel bad for that guard because I was like, oh. 
that's why he choked that guy out. Okay, this all this all tracks now. I understand what's going on here. Um, man, RIP to that guy. Um, but, but Trisha, what did you think? Because this also made me think about very pointedly on the show when they're talking about the Doom of Valyria. They mentioned like the blood mages. And it just made me think that this feels like a doomed path if you're resurrecting these traditions here. Um, did that like factor in for you at all? What did you think about this weird, gross blood wedding? I'll be honest. My only thought was so disconnected from the storyline. My thought was for the makeup artists and how many <laughs> times they probably had to wipe everybody's face clean and retake the next angle. Because when Damon and Renera are like making out, if their lips are cut, there would be blood all around yeah. there. And every time they're making out, it's like beautiful and clean. And I was like, dude, they had to stop, clean them up and restart mm -hmm. filming so many times to get this wedding done. And so my hat's off to the makeup artists that work on this show and how many, how many takes that must have been to get that done looking not quite as gross as it would have been. Yeah. I mean, gross. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't full on blood dripping down faces as they're making out gross. But I mean, they have blood up here. They have blood cut here. They did the hands. And I feel like a lot of us are used to seeing in media like a blood pact where you both yeah. cut your hands and then clasp. And like, we've seen that before. I wouldn't choose to do it myself, but like not horrifically shocking. <laughs> but yeah, the, the cutting the lip making out thing. To each their own. Is what I would say. But yes, for me, the real hats off were to the makeup department. Yeah, they they successfully avoided uh, Westerosi Joker face in that moment because <laughs> uh, it would have been pretty pretty brutal otherwise. But yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's one of the realities. I was I was so caught up. I'm like, wow, they're so precise with how they don't spill too much blood. <laughs> Must be a Valyrian thing. Um, yeah, it was they're just, just really good at blood weddings. You yeah. Know? Oh, you the more the more you conduct, the more you go to it. It becomes old hat after a while. They get really good at totally. it. But I think the least... thing about it, honestly, is especially given we didn't really talk about the legacy versus blood conversation specifically in that point. But the nice thing about it is you can see that the Targaryens are really focusing on keeping that bloodline Targaryen, oh, yeah. Targaryen, Targaryen uh, with this marriage. That is what this marriage is for. So I understood from a storytelling perspective why they might go kind of that blood ritual route. Uh, for the ceremony. Um, and also, I just loved the legacy versus bloodline uh, yes. conversation that we had earlier. I thought it was so interesting. Um, which determines your legacy? You know, is it the last name or is it the bloodline? Just a very cool idea to contemplate. Yeah, and it's you even you even see the kids hyper focusing on this too. When you have Aegon, who's apparently been betrothed to his sister Helena, who is busy playing with uh, bugs and dead crabs, um, and and like just off to the side, and then you have Aemond uh, being like, "I would marry my sister in a heartbeat if I was betrothed to her. It would strengthen the bloodline." And it's just it's just crazy to hear these like teenagers or preteens and like it feels like Eamon's case he's just like he seems like what like 12 years old 13 years old max just crazy to hear him like so dialed in on this idea that he has to do his familial duty and marry his sibling to ensure the purity of his family's royal blood and yeah I, I definitely think that 
as we'll see, it's a combination. It's going to be a combination for these folks between last name, blood, and actions as to what determines their actual legacy. Um, and that's one of the cool things as well about this this book, where you have these different sources. P- different people are in different people's corners, and so sometimes it's like, oh well, I- I'm loyal to them, so I'm going to make them sound really good in this section. Um, so it's nice to see sort of not an unbiased account, but more one that blends all three perspectives. Um, so with that in mind, I want to move on to talk about who is your MVP this episode, because there were so many big moments, big swings that people took, um, and just a lot of standouts that could potentially be there. But Mikey, who is your MVP? I think you got to give it to Damon. He got what he wanted most of all. It also brings him back to Westeros in a meaningful way, you know, because he, he's really lost. He, we, we see that he's really lost and, you know, he last episode he was talking about living in Pentos and the beauty of a simple transaction. We have dragons, they have gold, you know, but now he's going to come back and he's going to be involved in a way that he always wanted to. Uh, you know, it's bad for Rhaenyra. I think that this is bad for Rhaenyra, no matter how you look at it. She just lost her husband under strange circumstances and five seconds later married her uncle who everybody hates. Um, but, you know, you can't give it to – you can't – I don't know if you can really give it to Eamon since he lost an eye. I don't think you can give it to Alicent or Otto Hightower because I'd rather chew off my own tongue than, than praise either of them. So Damon, <laughs> Damon Targaryen. All right. That is – I mean he definitely came out on top in this whole exchange uh, from start to finish. I think he's a solid choice. Uh, but Trisha, who's your MVP? Oh, sorry. What? I, I was going to say minus the part where she convinced him to get married by saying – we were meant to burn together. I don't know. You know, if I meet somebody on the street and they grab me and go, we were meant to burn together, I am going to run and hide. I'm definitely going to marry them. Burn, burn, burn. But what if you're related to them? Would that change anything? <laughs> Get back to me on that. I'll think about it. Noted, noted. Uh, Trisha, who is your MVP this episode? I mean, Michael makes a great case for Damon, um, and it's very hard to... Honestly, I feel like no one is the ultimate MVP of this episode. Everybody has, you know, some moments where they shone and some moments where they had a setback, if you will. Um, But I'm going to say, and not because I'm praising him, but I'm going to say Otto Hightower is in terms of playing the game and asserting himself in a position where he got what he wanted, in terms of getting what you wanted in the game, mm-hmm. Otto got what he wanted quite a bit in this episode. We see in the very beginning of the episode, he's the hand again. And then by the end of the episode, he's like, yes, my children and all my pieces are falling into play. <laughs> Um, so not that I want to support him in any way, but I do think as far as getting everything set up exactly how he wanted, Otto probably has that with like an honorable mention for Laris. Laris is really asserting himself where he wants to be, um, and, and getting a little bit more power with each very calculated play. And it's just funny to me that his name rhymes with Varys and he's playing the Game of Thrones in a very similar way. To how we saw Varys slowly manipulate his way into power. Um, and also, uh, you know, having your own secret network of spies. And it's it, there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of parallels. But Laris is a creepy, creepy dude. So again, in term, I, I'm not advocating for either of these characters as good people. <laughs> but they are certainly uh, setting things in motion to their yes. favor. 
No, I'm glad you brought up Laris because I knew I forgot something and I wanted to mention that unholy alliance that Alicent now finds herself in where he, he's just casually coming up being like, I love it. They're like, hey, uh, this creepy guy's been looking at you the entire time. And he's just like, do you need a little, uh, do you need an eyeball? I have an you eyeball. He can, get you, he can get you a child's eyeball. Any child you point, he'll get, get it. You, I get you an eyeball about three o'clock, dude. Yeah. Ch- look, check your pocket. Look under your chair. Oh my God, where did this come from? And I love yes. that she's scared of him too. You can tell yes. in every interaction yes. that she is grossed out by him, as she should be. It's because, and he plays it so well too. It's just like so calm and like this like syrupy molasses voice where he's just very like gentle and like, you're like, I I feel, I feel like I need a shower after every time I talk to Laris, if that was the case, where it's just like, I know you want something and I know you're, I know I'm going to have to call on you at some point. I don't think that was a brush off. I think that's her in the aftermath of this acknowledging like, yeah, I am probably going to have to use your services down the line. So hang tight. Um, Yeah. Mikey, what did you think about uh, Laris uh, this episode? You know, I have a question for a change. I'm starting to wonder, does Laris kind of have a thing for Allison? Is there, is there just this creepy undertone? Because, you know, she says, oh, that's the pride of being the new Lord of Harrenhal. I don't know. I don't know. He really leers at her. And this is, I think, at least something worth considering as we go mm. forward. Because it will add an entirely new dynamic to his character, which at this point mm-hmm. is still very mysterious, right? Is he just so ambitious and just so amoral? Or does he have something else in mind? Uh, and I really thought that that scene of him freaking staring at her like the weirdest person in Westeros only See, added to that question. I, I love the idea that he might have a romantic design on her, but I took this as him. He's someone to whom the social contract does not exist. He is a sociopath in the truest sense of the word, where he uses people like props and tools to accomplish his goals. And he is staring at her because he knows that she's going to need him. And he knows that he can stare at her because what can she possibly say? Because he removed two of the biggest obstacles in her way. And he knows that she knows and she knows that he knows. And it's just this like really uncomfortable thing. So he's just like not paying attention to social cues at all and just being like, I will stare because I can. And I'm like concocting another plan. And it just it it makes him all the freakier to me and just this like makes him much more of you know, Varys was the one they called the spider, but I feel like it should be him. He's like the, he's like a portrait in a haunted mansion. No matter where he is in the room, his eyes are always on you, no matter where you go. And it's just, it was a really cool character choice they made for him in this episode. Well, and Laris has, is it a spider on his staff or is it another insect? He has an it's insect like a, on his staff. I thought staff. it was like a beetle or something. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I do. It is. It's absolutely an insect on that staff, which makes me think that Helena would like to spend some time with him. Um, but I, I, I'm just curious. I don't know if it is a spider. I thought it was like. I have to look again, but it's definitely some sort of creepy crawly, which is fitting given everything we know about Laris so far and how he operates with this. Well, and the of- Helena thing with the spider in between the two shells could that be uh-huh. foreshadowing for Laris? Oh, yeah. So this is this is probably the good time to mention it. Last week I told our viewers. Watch this episode with subtitles. I could not tell you something. Helena apparently is a prophet because last week she said for Aemon to get a dragon, he will have to close one eye. 
And this is this is entirely new. I, I went back. I don't remember there being anything in Fire and Blood about Helena being a prophet or eh, maybe even a witch. You know, there are witches in Westeros. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is when she's sitting there talking about threads and dragons and fire and spiders. I, I don't know what it means necessarily, but I would pay attention to everything that strange young lady says very, very carefully. Yeah, it's it's my. I wonder if this is like another thread where you know because they've they've repeatedly mentioned dreamers on the show. You know, they mentioned Viserys talking about his ancestor Danis the dreamer, the reason they left Valyria, how he always wanted to be a dreamer. Maybe she's manifesting part of this ability, um, and that's why she's sort of detached from sort of everyday concerns because she's sort of plagued by these visions of the prophetic. Um, that would be a very cool, cool. development to see here. Yeah. Um, my, uh, for my MVP, I'm going to give it to Rhaenyra. Um, I thought about giving it to Aemon because he has the biggest seismic impact on everyone in the episode. But I'm going to give it to Rhaenyra because she also kind of goes from feeling kind of low status at the beginning of this episode and kind of just trapped um, and like sort of cornered by everyone to getting a lot of things that she wants and having obstacles removed from her way. Um, and also having her dad go to bat for her in such a major way. It definitely draws battle lines, but I think that she definitely emerges much more powerful than when she went into this episode, even if that power is going to come at, a, at the cost of everyone being like, you had to marry, and you have so many family members, you had to marry this one? Okay, <laughs> sure. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's my takeaway from this episode. Um, any, any parting thoughts, any, anything that we didn't mention that you wanted to talk about before we, uh, before we shuffle off this uh, mortal podcast? <laughs> Yeah, uh, two things. One, uh, Corliss is 100% right. History does not remember blood. It remembers names. So he is correct about that. And two, there is this change from Fire and Blood raises a very, very interesting question. Uh, Sir Laner is not dead, but he cannot take his dragon sea smoke with him. Right. Now, now, as we've seen, right, dragons can take new riders after their current rider dies. Dragons only ever have one rider at a time. But, you know, Vagar, this is at least his third. Um, I'll have to double check. It might be his fourth. But it's at least his third rider. What happens to Sea Smoke now if his rider is still alive in the world? Can somebody claim him or not? This is something I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see how the show addresses because this is un, uncharted lore. Yeah. that That's why I thought they were going to maybe have Lenor just randomly die off screen somewhere just so they would, could get around that. But... Yeah, it is going to be interesting to see if there is there like a range. Is like does his Bluetooth disconnect if he's too far from Sea Smoke, or is this is this going to be something that's viable in the long term? Um, but that's awesome, uh, Trisha. Was there anything on on your end that you wanted to talk about before we depart? No, I mean the big thing that I uh, wanted to bring up just because it caught me off guard was the uh, potential of Helena to become some kind of prophet or uh, some type of witch in this world. Um, but we talked about that, so it, it is interesting the sea smoke Bluetooth uh, theory and and you know conversation. And I guess that all boils down to what type of connection is there between a dragon and its rider. Is it, you know, yes. uh, is it something that is similar to kind of the sentience and friendships we would have as non-magic using adults? Because in that case, what would be the difference between someone going disappearing on a hunting mission and you never seeing them again? Would mm-hmm. Sea Smoke be able to presume him dead? Or is it something that's a little more mystical than that in the connection? So now I'm going to thank you for that because now I'm going to be like fine-tuned looking for how they explain that away. If they do at all... 
True. Game of Thrones has a history of setting up lots of questions and then just forgetting about them. But let's not hope that that happens. I'm I'm trying to erase. Trisha, as long as as long as the sea smoke Bluetooth theory phrase catches on, I'll be fine. (laughs) I don't even need answers. I just want I just want to see like a week from now, everyone being like, "Well, the sea smoke Bluetooth theory." I, yeah. I think it's got. I think it's got real legs. It's got. It's got multiple <laughs> syllables like Grand Maester Conspiracy. People can really sink their blue teeth into it. So I'm a fan. I hope other people are as well. Um, but with that said, folks, that's all the time we have. We'll be back next week with another breakdown of House of the Dragon. But if you want to dive even deeper into this episode, in the meantime, we've got you covered over on Nerdist.com. Thank you again to the House of the Dragon Wine Collection for sponsoring today's show, and a big thank you to my amazing guest, Trisha. Where can people find you online? Oh my goodness. Uh, you can find me most active on twitch.tv slash Trisha Hirschberger um, or on all the socials at that girl Trish with no I in the girl. Um, I host and mostly do tech and gaming content in a wide variety of different places across the interweb. So uh, yeah, I guess, I guess social is probably the best place to keep up, but I absolutely adore discussing fantasy with the two of you and would come back anytime. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. And uh, Mikey, where can people find you? If you have questions, comments, or you just want to hear me say really horrible things about Aemon and Aegon Targaryen, find me on Twitter at Burger Mike. And you can read my thoughts on House of the Dragon at the best website anybody ever created, the one that lets me write about the show, Nerdist.com. All right, folks. Well, thank you to everyone at home who tuned in for this. In the meantime, we want to know, what did you think of this episode? What was your favorite moment? Who was your MVP? Let us know in the comments below. And for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.